I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so Friends AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Joining me on the podcast today is Richard Maud. Richard is known for various high-level roles throughout the public service. Some of these include being Senior Advisor on Foreign Policy and National Security Issues in the Prime Minister's Office, also as Director General of the Office of National Assessments, and as Head of the Whole of Government Task Force, which created the Australian Government's 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. On today's episode, we discuss what it was like to hold many of these high-level positions, the recent Shangri-La Dialogue, and how Australia might discuss issues of foreign policy better. But before we get into that, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast episode, the ANU College of Law. I know many people who have gone through the college have heard great things about Australia's National Law School. So if you're listening to this and do intend or are considering postgraduate study, head over to law.anu.edu.au to have a look at the degree programs on offer, like the Master of Laws or the Juris Doctor. That's all from me. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. Richard Maud, good to have you on the podcast. Good to be um, here. I want to talk a little bit about your career really quickly, just for our delegates and our listeners. Could you give the listeners a, a brief overview of your career, maybe like the, you know, the milestones, the key points? Um, I know you completed undergraduate studies at the University of Adelaide and then postgraduate studies at the ANU, but how did you go from there to being senior advisor to the Prime Minister? Yeah, well, great question. You know, in any interesting career, I think, you know, there are three things that often come into play. One's a fair bit of hard work. Uh, one, you have to be, you know, you have to really like what you do and be reasonably good at it. And then there's a bit of luck. You know, there's serendipity in any career. And I certainly had my fair share of it. And you know, I joined uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in 1990, a long time ago now, as a graduate. And I really loved it from the first day that I walked into the building. I, I just enjoyed the work. It fascinated me. I loved the idea of being able to work overseas. And I was having a fairly conventional career in uh, foreign affairs uh, uh, for quite a while, did, did, did a couple of postings. And then really quite out of the blue, I was um, heading up the Europe division of all things, even though most of my career has been Asia-focused. And um, quite out of the blue, I was asked to go and work for Julia Gillard to be her senior foreign policy advisor. I actually didn't know uh, Julia Gillard at all, but I did know uh, the then foreign minister, Stephen Smith, uh, quite well. Um, 
uh, he, he was quite fond of traveling to Europe. So as head of Europe division, I would go with him. And I think, I don't know this, but I, I suspect he was the one who suggested me to the PM's office. So mm. um, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, to be honest. Uh, but of course, it's one of those top jobs in the foreign affairs world. So I, I spoke to my uh, my wife about it and we knew it would be hard, although it was harder than even I thought it would be. Uh, and so we did it. And uh, yeah, it, it really tested me, but it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And then things happened from there. From there, I went on to be uh, the Director General of the Office of National Assessments. And after three and a half years there, uh, the then uh, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop with the new Secretary of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Francis Adamson, had decided that it was time for a foreign policy white paper. And they asked me if I would lead that. So uh, um, being head of ONA, as it was then, Office of National Intelligence, as it is now, it's a wonderful job. Uh, the late and much-loved Alan Gindrew used to say it was the best job in the whole system. Uh, but the idea of doing a foreign policy white paper, there have only ever been three in Australia's uh, history, uh, was really attractive to me. And so I jumped at that as well. Yeah, right. It's interesting that you talk about luck, actually. Um, I've had a few people, you know, say the same sort of thing in that it, it does take a fair bit of luck. Obviously, maybe that's maybe you being humble and other people being humble as well. No, I, you know, I think anyone who's had a pretty successful career will tell you that serendipity has played a part in it. And, you know, um, sometimes the stars align, sometimes doors open at the right time. You know, sometimes doors open for some people and it's just not the right time. Right. Anyway, I did the white paper. That was another another thing that really tested me. And from all those experiences which um, pushed me hard, I did learn and grow. And then the last couple of years of my career in government uh, were as a deputy secretary covering the Indo-Pacific back in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So returning full circle, I suppose, after being out of the department for seven mm. years. Uh, I then did what I sometimes say is the only unorthodox and brave thing I've done, you know, in my life. I left. Hmm. <laughs> I left government relatively young, but I'd had a pretty big 10 years of these four really big jobs and it really neglected my family and I was pretty tired and it was just time, I think, to um, do something completely different and uh, give back to the family and renew my sort of physical and intellectual reserves. And so since then, I've been writing and thinking and talking about foreign policy, mostly for Asia society, but also doing a bit of work back into government uh, as a, uh, on a kind of consultancy basis. Yeah, that's no, good to hear. Um, I want to talk briefly about your uh, time serving as senior advisor to um, Prime Minister Gillard. Julia Gillard was obviously an exceptional leader uh, and a real role model. Um, what was your experience working with her? Like, what, what would you say her as a leader? What characteristics did she exhibit? Well, we got on very well there was a personality match there and I again I don't know this I'm just it's just supposition but I wonder sometimes if if Stephen Smith who was in the foreign minister saw that and that might have been one of the reasons we're both I have to say um, fairly introverted people quite interior people <laughs> in some ways uh, and so we we were uh, we were a personality match of course, I admired her as, you know, a very strong female leader, a, a trailblazer. She was an exceptionally decent person uh, to work with. You know, she had a very 
for Parliament House, you know, and that brutal world of uh, politics and government and for the pressure that um, prime ministers and ministers are under all the time. She was a very, very decent uh, person to work uh, with, very inclusive and generous. Um, I found her a very good listener, uh, which is an interesting characteristic. You know, not all not all um, high-achieving politicians are great at listening, mm -hmm. uh, but she was a good listener. She was very thoughtful. She had an extraordinary memory. You know, I, I'm not sure if it was a photographic memory, but it was near close to it. So she had an ability, even though she was very new to foreign policy, to soak up an extraordinary amount of detail. Uh, she had a very nice manner on the international circuit. People warmed to her. She was good, very good at forging personal relationships. And, you know, there are some other leaders that those personal relationships uh, became very important in getting national business done, uh, including uh, the then US President um, Barack uh, Obama. And she was, you know, as I said, she was a good listener. She was willing to listen to advice. Now, she would make her own decisions on all of that. And if you're a foreign policy advisor, you're only one source of advice mm. going to a prime minister, right? They have political advisors, mm. they have domestic advisors. Mm. Uh, there are many constituencies uh, and issues that they have to juggle. But my view was if you got a good hearing, if you got a fair hearing uh, and you got to put your case, then it was your job to accept the decision uh, that was made and, and to make it work. Um, what sort of issues were you looking at while giving advice to her? Um, and what, do you have any anecdotes that could support any of that? Well, the the job is immensely vast, which is one reason why it's a so um, fascinating and rewarding, and b totally crushing, mm. <laughs> and you know almost impossible uh, to manage. So at the time, you know, really, I was I was doing all of Australian foreign policy uh, and defence policy. Uh, which, of course, is is fairly impossible. So you, you do rely on uh, the system, the departments, the Foreign Affairs and Trade Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, of course, and the Defence Department and other agencies like uh, the Office of National Intelligence to support you, uh, to give you to give you advice, to give the Prime Minister advice. Um, one one really important thing about practice here, though, is that of course. You know, a, an advisor in an office can give advice to prime ministers and ministers and does do that. But of course, uh, the departments provide their own formal advice through submissions and protecting that role of uh, formal advice, submissions, notes and minutes from departments is very important. So, I mean, get to get back to the the, you know your question it was it was everything and anything it was the crisis of the day it was economic policy it was trade policy it was foreign affairs it was um uh things like the security council um campaign which was successful mm. in the end it was things like landing the g20 for australia to host in brisbane uh, of course there was an election uh, after we won that meeting, and in the end, uh, neither Julia Gillard nor Kevin Rudd, who, who came in after her, got to host the meeting. Uh, a different government got to host that meeting. 
Uh, and some of that was uh, strategic and some of it was was very tactical on the ground advice. Yeah, right. Um, so just, despite all the intensity, you still describe it as a, as a great time and a blast um, from what I can tell. How would you contrast the work that you did as senior advisor to that in ONA in terms of workload and also the content of what kind of what you were doing in that organization? Totally, totally different. Um, you know, in, in that role in, in a prime minister's office, you're, you're always skating on thin ice. <laughs> uh, you're dealing with um, an immense number of issues very quickly. You are uh, the conduit for formal advice, as I said, from governments, and then you, you overlay your own thoughts uh, on top of that. You're dealing uh, not just with policy, but with media, of course, which is huge part of any leader and minister's life these days. And although, you know, I did my best to stay out of politics because I um, consider myself to be a, a public service, when you're in an office like that, you take leave from the public service, you can't totally escape the politics and part of your job is to uh, at least understand the political dimensions, the domestic political dimensions of any uh, issue. So it's a total onslaught of information and issues for many, many, many hours a day. In ONI, um, ONI does not do policy, so that's one thing you've got to really understand. Uh, as an intelligence agency and, and the government's chief sort of assessments body, its role is not to blur the line between analysis and policy. So it is really simply about, uh, mostly about intelligence and assessments and a bit about the coordination of the intelligence community. And it, in ONA, really what it tries to do is a couple of things. One is to explain the present. So for many governments, grappling with the here and now uh, is complex um, and having uh, an additional part of government over and above the, the departments of state to help governments understand what is happening now, why it's happening, and to give them insight into the types of responses uh, to a particular issue is incredibly important. And then, of course, it, uh, you're also trying to peer over the horizon, uh, not to predict, but to forecast what might be coming down the track. That's really hard to do uh, with a high degree of accuracy. So many variables in the international system. Uh, but it's important to at least try to track the big drivers of change, the big geopolitical, economic, environmental trends that are shaping the world. And of course, uh, you know, you, you don't have to manage the media or the politics. So it's a, a different kind of pace with a narrower but nonetheless very important set of responsibilities and an opportunity to think much more deeply about a set of issues than you than you possibly can uh, in any PM or ministerial office. Mm. Did those two separate pieces of information, the present and the future, did they serve the same audience or did, say, the present go to the minister and the future kind of was more so for departmental officials? Uh, in theory, they serve the same audience, but, you know, most governments are, are definitely crushed by the here and now. Mm. Uh, they find it, and this is, you know, understandable, very hard to lift um, uh, their eyes and look uh, over the horizon. You know, that's partly uh, just a time issue, mm. partly because 
um, looking over the horizon is inevitably filled with uncertainties and hypotheticals, and there's a tendency to think, well, we we don't really know what's coming down the track, and uh, and so we'll worry about it when it happens. No, there there have been, in my experience in government, uh, from time to time. Uh, sessions, for example, in the National Security Committee of Cabinet, which were dedicated to trying to do that, to look long term. But it's quite hard to do regularly and well. Uh, still important to give a government a sense of, as I said, those drivers of change. And we are in a world now where uh, governments, I think, are being forced where they can to look a little bit more longer term because the consequences of not doing so are very significant. Uh, for example, in relation to climate change uh, or indeed in relation to uh, the possibility of a, of, a war, of a war between America and China in, in the Indo-Pacific, which is, you know, the probability of that is uh, not high still for all the tension, but it is no longer remote uh, as we once might thought it, it uh, would be. So there are, you know, a number of issues out there where governments really do need to think about uh, the hypotheticals, the possibilities, the, the arc of possible. Mm. So I do want to segue into that, the, um, the 2017 foreign policy white paper. From your personal experience, um, I want to know how you go about creating or leading the creation of that white paper? What, what were the, th the sorts of things that you were thinking about at the time? Well, one thing to start off with is that a white paper is, it is a statement of government policy. It is, uh, it is prepared uh, by the bureaucracy because someone has to do it, uh, but it is not a departmental document. It is a statement of government policy. And so one of the first things you need to do in a project like that is uh, talk to government, to the Prime Minister and senior ministers about how they're seeing the world, the shape of their foreign policy, uh, trade, development assistance, um, and what they would like this document to, to be and to say. So that's your starting point. So we did we did do exactly that. You know, we, we had regular meetings with the Foreign Minister. We spoke to the Prime Minister, Francis Adamson, and and I went round Parliament House and talked to, to many of the ministers. Uh, I think below that, that we ran uh, a deliberately a highly consultative process. So we had a public consultation process that uh, people could send us submissions. Uh, we had many, many, many more submissions uh, than the previous white papers because in the 13 years, I think it was, the gap between our white paper and the one before it, um, of course, the digital world took off. So we had mm -hmm. online submissions. Uh, so we had a lot. Uh, we went all around Australia. Uh, we did town halls. We did roundtables. We spoke to people from all walks of life and not just in the cities. And then across, the go across government, we also ran a very consultative process. We wanted and we were asked to, to run a... A, a very strong whole of government process so that, you know, this it's, it has been the case for a very long time now that the boundary between, the, between foreign policy and domestic policy is blurred, if not really evaporated. Most 
departments and agencies in Canberra have an international agenda. What happens overseas is shaping domestic policy and domestic policy shapes relations overseas. So we worked very hard across government uh, for insight into their policy priorities and how they were seeing the world. And from there, we built the paper. Uh, we, uh, we did what I said, uh, <laughs> uh, one job of the bureaucracy is to do. We didn't try and predict the future, but we did think about the drivers of change, what was shaping the world and what was coming down uh, the track at us. And that was one of the very early chapters in the paper. You know, I, I think we got those trends right, but I'd also say a few years on that change happened much more quickly than even we anticipated. Uh, and built on those drivers of change and the world they were describing, the national interests they were impacting, we then designed uh, a set of policy responses and high-level principles uh, and, uh, and, and away, away we went. Um, you know, the foreign policy white paper was designed around a series of high-level foreign policy priorities. These kinds of papers are inherently vulnerable to being overtaken by events or change of governments. Uh, and so you have to be pragmatic about their lifespan. But, it, you know, it did get a pretty good run, I think, because it was just on the cusp of a period where a lot of change was coming to Australian foreign policy. Yeah. Does that mean that you're saying that that run is over in that the world described by the 2017 paper isn't really what we're seeing today? Is that, is that what you're getting at? I think events have definitely uh, overtaken um, the paper as a whole. You know, there are still parts of the paper that you could read today and it would resonate. So mm -hmm. the first substantive policy chapter is on the Indo-Pacific. It describes essentially an Indo-Pacific balancing agenda, that is to create what the white paper calls called uh, a balance favourable to Australia's interests in the Indo-Pacific. The current government talks about a strategic equilibrium in which no one country uh, dominates and no country is dominated. Now, it's you know, you can see very strongly the connections between the overall objective and that set of policies. So you still can see uh, resonances in it. But we now have um, a different government, different set of ministers. Uh, it's not their paper. It's the previous government's paper. They've, they're making their own way, forging their own policies. And, and yes, there has been uh, change at a pace faster than I think we even we predicted, and most of it um, fairly negative in terms of the environment in which mm -hmm. Australia is operating. Um, I think it's a, it's a, you know, Herculean task in some sense. Um, but given that, do you think there's a, uh, you think there's a need to improve the way that in Australia, we discuss issues surrounding Australian foreign policy? Um, the current system is, for, as you've described, whenever the government seems to need or want a white paper to be created, then it is created. But do you think there's a more proactive system that might be better? Yeah, I think there's a couple of issues rolling around uh, that question. You know, one is how should governments convey their foreign policy priorities to a public and talk to an Australian public about the way the world is changing and what that means for Australia's national interests. You don't have to have a white paper to do that. You know, they, they do take a long time. It took us a year 
uh, they're big processes um, and they are vulnerable to being to being overtaken by events. But there are other ways you can do it. You know, speeches are one way to do it. Uh, and we've had some some great speeches from the foreign minister. The prime minister gave a speech in Singapore at the Shangri-La Dialogue um, just, just the other week. Uh, you can do statements to parliament. Now, the government, current government has not done a holistic statement to parliament yet, but, you know, occasionally there are uh, rumours, put it no more than that, about the possibility of, for, for example, a national security statement um, being done. This is a government that doesn't seem very keen on big strategy, big public strategy documents like uh, a white paper. The government's agreed to do a national defence strategy every two years, but it, but there's no sign of any interest in doing a national security strategy to sit on top of that, which is the American model and which the Japanese and some other countries have adopted. So, so in my view, if you're not going to do the big, um, the big strategy document, you do need, uh, I think, something else—a statement to Parliament or a big set set piece speech where you don't just talk about the Indo-Pacific or uh, your development assistance agenda or your trade agenda, but you bring it all together for the Australian public. And then I think the last thing I'd say on this, you know, it is a very difficult time. Uh, we all agree on that. And that, I think, requires a, a degree of openness and honesty by governments in speaking to the Australian public about the environment we, we are uh, finding our way in and and how the government is responding to it. Mm. Uh, final question on these sort of topics um, before we get into um, some of the more recent developments in the Shangri-La Dialogue. It's more of a personal one. Um, what don't you like about the term rules-based order? Yeah, well, it might just simply because it sounds a bit, um, you know, wonky um, <laughs> and it's very overused. But there are a couple of uh, problems with uh, the phrase the rules-based order. One problem is that it it can give an impression that the world is run by rules alone or can be run by rules alone. But, of course, the primary shaper of the international system remains power, the power of nation states. Uh, so we live in we live in a world in which power is still very important, and the you know the really big story for Australia that shaped so much of our foreign policy has been the rise of China. That is a story about the relative shift in power in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so I think we need to remember that you know personally, I think rules are very important, and a middle power like Australia must advocate and argue for them. But they also sit, you know, rules, if you like, are a layer that sits on this bedrock of power, and we have to engage with that. The second uh, problem with the rules-based order is that, um, uh, you know, a number of countries, in, including China and uh, in the global south, say, well, that's your rules-based order, right? They largely reflect American power, American values. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily agree with it all. Uh, so how do you get around this? Well, one is to be pragmatic and just accept that politicians like talking about the rules-based order and not worry too much about phrase, it. Yeah. <laughs> probably, probably sensible. Uh, 
if you were a sort of a grammar Nazi and a fanatic, you could you could ask them to talk about a rules based order rather than the rules based order. Mm. Or you could do what ja uh, the Japanese do, which they actually just talk about the rule of law. Mm. They talk about a, a region governed by the rule of law. I quite like that concept, although it's not one that we tend to use ourselves, because there is a body of international law that countries have signed up to, including China. And one really interesting example here is the law of the sea. So, you know, China sometimes says to America, well, you talk about these rules and these laws, but whose are they? They're yours. Well, that's not always true. And in the case of the law of the sea, China in its modern form, in its modern incarnation, uh, was present and uh, an active participant in the negotiation of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. It signed the, it signed the convention and then it ratified it. Mm. It is manifestly in breach of that body of international law in the South China Sea. Uh, and so when you talk about the rule of law, uh, you know, that is a way of saying to China, well, that is a collection of laws that you agree to. They're not imposed on you. They're not a Western construct. Uh, and you should live up to them. Uh, and, of course, that's what we try to do, although that then brings you back to the problem of power because China's become like any great power there. They apply, mm. <laughs> apply rules selectively. But anyway, there are some ways you can, you know, you can think about that phrase the rules-based order. Interesting. And I want to segue into the, the Shangri-La Dialogue, um, Asia's biggest defence summit. And kind of just touching on what you just kind of spoke about, at the Shangri-La Dialogue, the Chinese defence minister said a lot of things. One of the things he said was that um, the US should stay out of the waters near China. It wasn't specific in the sense of, you know, the entire South China Sea. How, do you, how did you perceive or react to that statement um, and what it says about the um, UN Convention on the Law of the Seas? Uh, and why are, say, um, freedom of navigation operations throughout the South and East China Sea is important? Yeah, big set of issues there. You know, I, I think one place to start is that it demonstrates the state of US-China relations, which, of course, are very tense at the moment um, and very competitive. Uh, from a perspective of uh, America, but also Australia and Japan and many countries in Europe, it is important to assert uh, freedom of navigation in international waters. And it's especially important to do so in um, places where we believe and there and a duly convened arbitral tribunal agreed that China's ex excessive maritime claims are unlawful. If you look at the South China Sea, uh, it's quite clear that China would like to have de facto control of the whole area would like countries simply to accept that you know uh, it, it is quite clear it is built uh, military facilities inside the exclusive economic zone of a smaller poorer country in the form of the philippines and there is a very important principle at stake here which is should we allow china just to get away with it because it's become very powerful and the answer to that is, no, we shouldn't. It's it's very hard to roll back, perhaps impossible to roll back what they've done. But one way of holding them to account uh, are these freedom of navigation operations and to assert our right to 
sail or fly in, uh, in international waters or, or airspace. Uh, from seen from Beijing, uh, their mindset is that um, America will never accept China as a peer, that America is bent on, to borrow a phrase from Xi Jinping, uh, containment, suppression and encirclement. Uh, they view these exercises as a provocation. That's the Chinese mindset. Uh, and uh, they don't want to get into a discussion about managing strategic competition. They don't want really to get into a discussion about how to uh, manage um, encounters between ships on the sea and air force planes in, in the sky in a way that's safe and professional because they, they argue that to do so legitimizes the American and allied presence in these waters. So that's the context for General Lee, the Chinese defense minister saying, well, the problem here is that uh, these exercises in our view are not about freedom of navigation. They're simply provocations. They're all done very near to China. We don't do them near to you. So the answer is just for you to go away and stop doing it. <laughs> now that's not gonna happen. Um, uh, you know, I think the last thing I'd say about this is that the the tragedy here is that um, not just that relations between China and America are very bad and the two sides talk past each other, but that China is unable or unwilling <laughs> to accommodate the concerns of other countries. Uh, they accuse America of provoking trouble but if you look at the remarkable shifts in policy that have happened in Australia, in Japan, in India, and are now happening in Europe, the line that connects those is not uh, does not run through Washington, it runs through Beijing, and it represents concerns about China's behaviour, its policy settings, and its future intent. Uh, and until China is prepared to at least enter into relationships in which there is some give and take on those issues, we're going to live in this very tense world, including in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. Hmm. Um, were you able to gauge the attitude of any ASEAN countries um, in this whole process, or did any stick out? Well, most of them are nervous. <laughs> uh, they're worried. Uh, they're worried about the risk of a war, uh, which they don't want and would... Uh, take no part in. Uh, they know that any such conflict would be devastating for the regional and the global economy, and they're understandably very anxious about that uh, as developing economies, and we should respect that. Uh, their, their economies, at least in trade terms, are very heavily tied to China. China's a major investor in Southeast Asia. Uh, the connectivity and people flows are, are very high. So that's one worry and concern that's very evident uh, in conversations you have with Southeast Asians behind the scenes and in things that they say publicly. You know, there's a bit of a jaundiced view that you can come across in Southeast Asia about America. I mean, um, for, for some, for many parts of Southeast Asia, we should remember that the, you know, the the high point of the liberal rules-based order, which was so good for Australia, was neither liberal nor orderly for 
Southeast Asia, if you think about the Cold War, the Vietnam conflict, the devastation mm -hmm. in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, if you think about Indonesia and the way in which the West meddled there uh, uh, under Suharto. So, you know, there is a view at times that, you know, it's America who's stirring up this trouble and it's America, therefore, that needs to change course. Um, they want America and China to talk, uh, but they don't have an answer to how to make that productive any more than the rest of us do at the moment. And there are definitely some Australian angles here. So they look at the quad and they worry a bit. I think they're a bit more reassured about the quad's intent now due to some vigorous diplomacy from Australia and others. But they do still, some of them worry about what the Quad says about ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and its relevance and centrality in the region. And they look at AUKUS and the new submarines that hopefully will come at some point and they, some of them, not all of them, say that this is contributing to an arms race in the region. That's a kind of an, an annoying critique for many in Australia because they don't say the same thing about China's mm -hmm. much, much larger military modernization. But yes, bottom line, it depends a bit on who you talk to, which country and which part of the system inside countries, but there is definite concern about major power competition, the risk of a war and the risk of an arms race. You mentioned India in the quote just then. Um, why did the Indian Defence Minister skip the event? Yeah, it's hard to know. Uh, I asked a few people that in Singapore. Uh, apparently he doesn't do all that much travel. Uh, so it could be uh, as simple as prioritisation. I was there this year and last year, and uh, and it is notable, though, that the Indian Defence Minister was not at either of those um, either of those meetings this year or last year, especially when really just about everyone else was. You know, I hesitate to oh, to read anything more. <laughs> into it, then, uh, you know, it may just not fit the schedule. Mm. But of course, it would, I think, be useful to have India present at that kind of meeting. Of course. To end on this, um, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese gave the keynote speech. Um, what did he say? Uh, what does that mean for Australia? Well, um, listeners should get that speech um, off the Prime Minister's website and read it for themselves, I think. But I read it as essentially an argument, a call for better and stronger dialogue between America and China to find ways to manage their strategic competition. The competition is not going away. I think there was a gentle recognition in the way the speech was framed that the United States under the Biden administration is genuinely trying to do this and it's the Chinese system that are, are making uh, that dialogue harder than it probably should be at the moment. Now, so there are reasons for that. As I said earlier, if you try and look at the world from Beijing's eyes, they, they, just, they, they, they see the problem in totally different ways to we do. It's not to validate that point of view, but it is important to understand it. So I think that's what the argument was about. Part of it was about um, explaining the government's current uh, approach to China, uh, this idea of trying to stabilise the bilateral relationship, 
to depoliticize, take some of the heat out of it domestically, and to try and restore the trade relationship. Uh, part of it was um, talking to the region about why Australia uh, believes the Quad can support peace and security in the region and why Australia is not just going down the path of nuclear-propelled submarines, but uh, hoping over time to make some quite dramatic adjustments to the structure of our defence force uh, to give it uh, the singular focus, really, of being able to deter adversaries at distance. And that means a military with a lot more offensive punch. It means it means a lot more missiles on planes and on ships and, to some extent, uh, on land. Do you think that reassurance had any impact? I think the speech was welcomed by Southeast Asians that I talked to in the audience for its tone. You know, the government has worked very hard to reassure on the Quad and the Quad's agenda as it's evolved is not defence and security focused. It's really about trying to deliver public goods into the region. I think that does have a reassuring effect. Uh, the government's worked equally hard quietly behind the scenes on AUKUS, and that also has had some impact. But there is still, as, a, as we discussed earlier, there is an underlying residual of anxiety about the environment that Southeast Asia has found itself in. And there are uh, and there is a, a divergence, if you like, about the way in which Australia is responding to a set of challenges posed by China's rise, which is uh, deterrence, bigger role in deterrence, uh, an Indo-Pacific balancing agenda and a set of domestic policies that are about resilience and sovereignty. There is a divergence between that set of responses and the way in, the way in which Southeast Asia is responding to China. And that's, you know, quite marked uh, and Southeast Asians see it as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a good place to kind of end off that part of the conversation. On the ACSS each episode, we ask for one must read, one must watch, and one must listen, I suppose. Uh, so if you were able to, could you please provide some of those? Yes. I, uh, you did tell me this and I forgot it, so I haven't prepared <laughs> for it. Let me answer it in a different way, yep. uh, which, I, which, which may interest, I think, um, your, your listeners. When I was in government, of course, I had this enormous feed of uh, classified information, uh, intelligence, uh, reports and cables from our diplomatic network, advice from internal advice from many parts of the system. Uh, and then when I left, because I had access to none of that, and it was a kind of moment of panic for a little while, because I thought, well, how will I keep up with what's mm. going on in the world? And then, of course, pretty obvious in hindsight, with a bit of work, I discovered that there is actually an enormous quality quantity of very high quality analysis in the open source world about um, the way in which the world is changing and how governments are and could respond to it. And so I suppose my my must-do bit of advice is that if you're really interested in the world, and if you haven't already done this, spend a bit of time browsing uh, and decide for yourself about the people that you're interested in following on social media and reading or listening to. And that doesn't have to be long, weighty books. Hmm. You know, I've got a stack of 
really impressive books on foreign policy and I tend to get halfway through them and then skim the rest. Uh, you know, I suspect most people are like that. There is a rich world of short form analysis out there from some of the world's best experts that you can tap into. And if you curate that feed carefully, it doesn't become totally overwhelming. Mm. Um, and that is a very good way of keeping up. Now, you know, at some level, on some issues, you need to go deeper, right? And that's when you go to the really good scholars, the longer works, the big research. But in terms of having a worldview, it's a phrase you sometimes hear in government, it's a phrase that Peter Varghese, a former secretary of the department, used a lot. If you're interested in uh, international relations, foreign policy, defence policy, uh, you know, uh, home home affairs, you really need a worldview. You need to have a sense of what's happening in the world uh, and what it means for Australia. And curating that um, sort of content feed and then being diligent about reading a fair bit of it because it's short uh, or listening to it, uh, which can be a very time-effective way, that, that, would, that would be my must-do. I found that very valuable. And in a in a, in an odd way, I know more. I think I actually know more about the world as a whole than uh, now than I did when I was in government. Yeah, well, it is uh, you know personal point. Um, are there any sources that you go to in particular that you would say are very important in shaping your your view as it is? Or look, I, I certainly have people um, that I go to because I think um, they're very credible there, there is a trap in this because we all have our own biases mm, right? you know we we tend to like people that we agree with and you have to be aware of that so sometimes it's good to read people you know you might not agree with right that's a, that contestability is really important the other trap here is that especially uh, at the moment uh you know if you don't happen to speak very good mandarin for example or Japanese, you, you're going to get an English language reflection, right? And that's another thing to be conscious of. And I uh, I am conscious of it because I don't happen to speak Mandarin or Japanese. And then the last issue to be conscious of is, um, you know, there is, there, is some, there is some absolutely terrific analysis, say, for example, on Southeast Asia by people outside of Southeast Asia. But you must complement that with Southeast Asians. <laughs> mm-hmm you know, read both. But to make it real for you, for example, I I watch US-China relations uh, pretty closely uh, and, um, you know, Washington is chock-a-block full of uh, really great people uh, on that subject. So uh, I pay attention to Danny Russell, who happens to be a colleague of mine in Asia Society, um, People like Bates Gill, another colleague in Asia Society who actually heads uh, the Centre for China Analysis. Uh, Ryan Haas, really good analyst uh, on China. Uh, Bonnie Glazer, you know, another great uh, American China watcher. And look, there are many others. It's a bit unfair to pick that uh, selection out. But these are people who are genuinely world class. Uh, and can give you quick, sharp takes, which you know are very useful for getting a sense of how America is reading China. Now, of course, you have to then get a sense, even if you don't speak Mandarin, mm. 
how China is reading America because it's it is totally different. <laughs> of course. Well, um, that'll, that'll conclude this. Um, Richard Moore, thank you for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.